You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Here in Vox Studios in New York City, very excited to talk to Scott Burns. You may also know him as Scott Z. Burns, but uh, if you know me, call him Scott Burns. Welcome, Scott. Great to be here. Scott is bringing you not one, but two movies to your, wherever you watch streaming stuff, if you watch it on your laptop, on your TV, wherever. Um, The Laundromat is out on Netflix right now, Uh, stars Meryl Streep and a huge cast. Also has The Report coming to Amazon. You can see in theaters first. Stars Adam Driver and a huge cast. I've seen them both. They're great. Thank you. Welcome. It's great to be here. You are. You wrote The Laundromat. Wrote and produced that one, yeah. And then wrote and directed and produced The Report. Yes. Now, the fine folks who produced The Report, I think, are paying for your town car here today. So you want to start with that one first? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. You, can, you can go see this in a theater right now, and if you wait a few weeks, you can go see it on Amazon. Actually, no. It starts in theaters Friday the 15th. Yeah, I think we're going to do, probably do some time travel with this podcast. So okay. I bet when this comes out, you'll be able to see it in a theater. All right, great. Let's stipulate that you can see it in a theater. Okay. And you can also stream it. This is the question I ask everyone who does this. Where would you prefer someone sees your movie, Scott Burns? Um, You know, that's such a loaded question. Um, You know, this movie was done independently, and Amazon bought it at Sundance, and I felt very strongly that I wanted there to be a theatrical experience. I had years ago produced a movie called Inconvenient Truth, And we had the same debate about would that movie have a happier existence on TV in some form. Sort of pre-streaming. Yeah. It's the Al Gore environmental movie. But we felt really strongly that it was important for people to go and see this and have a sense of community and, and get up from that movie and have to look at each other. And although this is a scripted movie and not a documentary, I do have some of those same feelings. And I just think that there is a big difference that we don't really talk about in society between the experience of sitting in a theater with other human beings and that we help each other through a movie in a lot of ways. You know, there are things that people laugh at and it gives you permission to laugh. So I I do want people to go to a theater. That being said, I also recognize that there are a lot of people who did not, you know, grow up with the theatrical experience as being an art form. And if all they can do is watch a thing on a computer or on a phone, then, you know, I have to accept that. You know, I can't control how people experience and take in their culture. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have 
Amazon and Greta both. So that's pretty consistent, I think, in the sort of the informal poll I've been doing the last few years, which is like you to see it in a theater, realize you might not, and as long as you see it, I'm happy. Yeah, and, and with our movie, I mean, I don't know that the report would make it as far into the world as it as it would have, you know, without a streaming service. There are a lot of communities that are now sort of cinematically underserved in terms of anything that's not a comic book movie. And so for those people who live in, in places where there isn't that kind, there isn't enough of an audience yeah. to, you know, have drama and some other kinds of films you know, then this is all we have. So to be able to communicate with those people is great. I used to think about this, and I think other people do, in terms of, well, if it's a big explosion, if there's if there's men and women running around in tights or in front of a green screen, that makes sense to see on a big screen. But smaller movies, you can see that at home. And I've found that those small movies often work really well in theaters and hold your attention in the way that yeah. if you're sitting yeah. on the couch, no, it's I agree. much easier to pause. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think that... Well, first of all, when you're in your own space, you know, you see beyond the boundaries of the screen. Yeah. And as someone who, you know, makes films this way and tells stories this way, you know, that's not what I want. I want to be able to control where your eye goes. I want to be able to control how loud it is. I, I want your attention for, you know, two hours in a row. And so that's problematic to begin with in terms of the experience of this. Secondly, you know, we talk about explosions and special effects, but on a more simple level, there's also people's faces. Yep. And, you know, going and seeing in, in our film, you know, Annette Benning and Adam Driver, who are two really spectacular actors, and get to see, you know, them really emote. It, I think it's like this sort of weird relationship with megafauna or something. Like when you see an actor in a, in a theater and their face is is big, you really, I think, get to go down the rabbit hole of human emotion in a way that you don't get to when you're bigger than them. I had your, your frequent collaborator Steven Soderbergh in here a while ago, and I, I just crushed him by telling him that I'd watched about half of the, uh, the Western series he'd, he'd done for Netflix on my phone. But that's where I could watch right. it. Yeah, and, you know, and we get it. I mean, Stephen and I talk about it a great deal. Yeah, you want people to go and see a movie much in the same way, you know, there's a difference between seeing a painting live and in person at a museum than, you know, picking up a book and looking at a photo of a painting. And I think ultimately seeing it on your computer or your, your phone it's, you know, it's a photo of a movie. We're talking about the form and the delivery of the movie. We should talk about the movie itself. It's, like you said, it's not a documentary, but it is based on real-life events. Um, do you want to just lay it out for us? Yeah, the, the report is the story of a United States Senate staffer named Daniel Jones who was given the task by the Senate Intelligence Committee to explore the CIA's enhanced interrogation program that was conducted after 9-11. Right, it's torture used by the military yeah. after 9-11. Not the military, the, right? the CIA. Correct. And so it sort of follows Dan's odyssey as this guy who pieced together this entire story of the CIA program and where it came from and if it was effective and were we lied to about it. And then... The part of the story that I think people don't have an awareness of is the incredible struggle to get it out into the world. 
Right. Um, and it's there's a bunch of interesting historical echoes here. It's not that long ago uh, to what's going on now in terms sure. of whistleblowers. And one of the most striking things, and often people have remarked on this, is in your movie, the CIA is an institution of power that is held people are suspicious of it, right? That sure. People like you and me, like listen to this podcast in the past, would hear that someone from the CIA say something and say, well, that's the CIA, you can't really trust them. Now we're in this topsy-turvy world where the CIA and the rest of the national security apparatus are seen as truth tellers right. because we've got the Trump administration in. Um, obviously, we've got a whole whistleblower story going on right now. As an aside, one thing that reminded me of when I was watching your movie in a theater, in a nice screening room, uh, was thinking about the movie Zodiac. Sure which is about the serial killer, yeah. but also about Mark Ruffalo and Robert Downey just going through the day-to-day -day work of either being a newspaper man or a detective and trying to figure something out. And there's just a lot of time spent showing how work gets done. And it's intentionally not glamorous because it's a drag to go right. through all this stuff. So it struck me that you were trying to sort of show how some of this stuff actually, how one goes through digging through files. and I mean, there's some cloak and dagger stuff here and there's some mm -hmm. shocking, the torture scenes are shocking. I think even still to this date, but a lot of it's just a guy in a room. Yeah, you know, and I, I I wanted to really dig into that. You know, I mean, the thing that's interesting to me about about Dan is that it's he was a guy in a windowless room for seven years pursuing something that people periodically dropped in on this story when there would be a revelation in a big newspaper, but no one really connected the dots. And where the dots lead you to is a real crisis of accountability. And I think that is something that we're seeing today. You know, what you said before about, about the CIA and, and some of the principals in the intelligence community who also appear in the report is really important because I, I think the thing we're struggling with on one hand is, to me, adulthood means that you can look at a person and see that they do good things and not good things. And they're not all good or all evil and that the world is not black and white or at least not for adults. And in the case of our film, you know, I think John Brennan is decidedly on the wrong side of history in regards to the CIA's program. And now he's sort of one of the leading anti-Trumpers or yeah. the most, I think, the loudest voice in sort of the intelligence security sure. community sort of speaking out against Trump. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people have to make of that what they will. The idea of Dan Jones, who is a real person, being in that room basically by himself on and off for seven years, really not getting any light, any recognition when he does sort of come up and try to surface the thing, more or less gets punished. Yeah. I've seen a picture of you and Dan Jones, so I yeah. assume you spent time with him. Sure. Is he a normal person? Doesn't strike <laughs> me as one, especially when Adam Driver plays him. You know, I think Dan is somebody who, like any good investigator, as they get into it, Parts of their personality start to fall away. They become really singularly focused. What I told Adam at the beginning of our process was, imagine that you're given a blueprint and you don't know what it is and it's kind of dusty and faded and you go into a basement and you build this thing for seven years and you step back and you realize you built your own gallows. And that was sort of the arc that I asked him to play. I don't know that Dan would consider it, you know, exactly the story of sure. of his life, but I think the the similarities are obsession, rigor, 
a sort of really strong belief in a system. And I think those are, are really interesting characteristics. I mean, you know, Dan as a human being listens to me. I mean, he does have a life. Mm-hmm. But you can uh, strip that out. The movie. Yeah, which was something consciously I chose to do. I didn't want to do the scene of Dan lays in bed and stares at the ceiling or Dan opens the refrigerator. Has a fight with his girlfriend. Exactly. So I wrote those scenes, but then I thought, you know, they seem to let the air out. And part of what I wanted to do was a political thriller kind of in the, in the style of all the president's men and, you know, Alan Pakula movies from the early 70s and Sydney Parallax, Lennon, yeah. Parallax View, Clue to all of these movies that had kind of this paranoid feeling. And to do that, I felt the more claustrophobic I could make Dan's experience, that this was all the audience is going to get to see this guy do, is try and, you know, and push this boulder up a hill. So if you want to see a guy push boulder up a hill, metaphorically, while sitting in a basement, not metaphorically, for seven years, this is your movie. Not just any guy. Did Adam you, Driver. Did you know this was going to be the movie when you picked it up? No, you know, the the other part of the story was these two Air Force psychologists who sold this program to the CIA on the heels of 9-11. And if, if you go back in your mind, you know, we were taught to be very afraid mm-hmm. after 9-11. We were taught to believe something else was going to happen like this. There was an anthrax. The threat scare. ratings. Yeah, everything was orange or red. Yeah. And these two psychologists in that environment walked into the CIA as contractors and persuaded them to fund a program where they believed they had the special sauce, as they put it, to get al-Qaeda detainees to talk. Now, the decision to pursue this was actually made before we even had a detainee. So it was based on nothing other than maybe a misunderstanding about an obscure document called the Manchester Manual, which is a whole other rabbit hole. So these guys sell this program. And when I read about it in Vanity Fair, I initially thought that I was going to end up writing a very dark comedy like Strange Love or Catch-22. Kind of a two goofballs, don't quite know what they're up to. Right. This is, the, I think, the impulse everyone had when, uh, I will never get their names, but the the, the two guys with odd names who were working with Giuliani who were arrested yeah. on the tarmac with one-way tickets to, to was it Austria? Uh, I, I now I think, think so. it's Kiev. Kiev. Either way, it just it has that sort of like, yeah, this is very scary and also pretty hilarious. Yeah. This could be a very good dark comedy. Well, it was stunning to me, you know, in, in starting to do research, there's a, a program that the U.S. military has called SEER School, and it stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. And if you were a Navy SEAL, you would go to SEER school, and what they would try and do is is do the worst things that a totalitarian regime might do, do what our worst enemies would do to our most valuable, you know, um, special forces. You're getting tortured by your yeah. by by your own military in a controlled environment, right. and to make sure it's a controlled environment, there are usually psychologists assigned to these programs that make sure that the the person who's conducting the interrogation doesn't go too far and, and hurt you, or that you, as, as a trainee, as somebody who we've invested a lot in to become a special forces person, doesn't feel shame um, or humiliation. And so they're really there to oversee the process um, and make sure that it's humane. Now, there's nothing about that program that suggests 
it could be somehow, as they put it, reversed engineer for truth-telling. And, fact, and resold to the military. Right. As spy-catching school. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, their contract was enormous. I mean, they were paid $80 million, um, but their contract was for, for more than that. And Barack Obama did turn off the report or turn off the program um, a few days into his office. But You could reportedly show them on a private plane. Yeah, well, they did take yeah. private planes to black sites that we know. Um, so it wasn't that they were just, you know, off partying on yeah. a private plane. But they set up this interrogation protocol that was not based on science, even though they did represent that they had science that backed it up. And initially they said, this will help us get the truth. But after they used it on our first detainee, Abu Zubaydah, and they didn't get anything, they said, oh, well, it also helps to tell us that he doesn't know anything. And so it seemed to become, to me, very much like what Heller describes as Catch-22. Yep. I was thinking of another black comedy. So so who talks you out or do you talk yourself out of, of this is not a black comedy, this is a very serious story? Well, the report itself largely did that. You know, it's so stunning to read the evolution of this program and that it never really was effective and that the CIA misrepresented it to Congress, to two different administrations, both Bush and Obama, and that even their own conclusion was that it didn't work. And yet still today, they double down and say that, you know, it, it did work. And so when I finally read the report when it came out, um, I sort of felt like I needed to pivot. And then I met Daniel, and I thought, you know what? I've written a lot of movies about people who may have an unusual relationship with the truth. Um, I hadn't written a movie in a while about someone who I thought was a hero. I felt like this was a good time to do that. Heroes are good. Heroes you are can still good. use them in 2019. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. We're back here with Scott Burns. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected, and 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Back here with Scott Burns. 
telling us about the madcap comedy involved in torture in Abu Ghraib. Um, that's not what it is. It's The Report with Adam Driver, Annette Benning, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Almost everyone in this movie is a real person. Um, you talked with Dan Jones. Did you go and talk to Diane Feinstein and say, we're going to make a movie that stars you? How do you feel about that? I tried, and it's interesting. You know, Senator Feinstein, and there's a line in the movie that, that goes to this, you know, said through her spokespeople, through her chief of staff, that, you know, that's not how she feels. She wants to, you know, uphold the law of the land. She would rather do it as a senator than being a part of pop culture storytelling. And I respect that. Um, I did speak to Senator Udall, who Scott Shepard plays mm-hmm. in the movie, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, um, Ali Soufan, who is the FBI interrogator who did get meaningful information out of Abu Zubaydah about Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was the 9-11 planner. So we did get that from an FBI interrogator who used nothing more than what is called rapport building. And it's really interesting because when I started to do my research, I had asked Ali Soufan, so like, what do you do? What's the methodology? And he said, there is no methodology beyond, beyond rapport building. You go in and you, you talk to people. And the interesting thing about it is, you know, the Nazis had a torture program in the Second World War, not surprisingly. And their head interrogator, their best guy, was a guy named Hans Scharf. And Hans Scharf worked on 500 Allied pilots, I believe. And all of them broke under his questioning, um, except 20. So... He had a pretty striking mm-hmm. record. He never touched or tortured any of them. He just had them have coffee, tea, scotch, talk to them about America, their lives, ask them questions, befriended them. Sort of sounds like being a reporter. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and in the end, we were so taken in this country with Han Scharf as an interrogator that after the war, the Pentagon hired him and had him come here and lecture on his techniques. And so, again, it's this sort of uninformed path that the CIA went down. You know, the military has really strict rules about, you know, how we interrogate people. But the CIA decided that they needed this special program and they hired these contractors and away they went. So this is a movie with big stars. It's a very serious subject. Um, There is no superhero IP in here. It's the kind of movie we keep hearing that doesn't get made anymore. And then people will point to the streaming services and say, well, they're making them. Sure. But that's not quite what happened here. You made the movie yeah, well, and then sold it to Amazon. Can you walk us through, walk yeah, us through that? Yeah, the movie started its life at HBO. And I was doing my research and working away with um, the executives there who were great and really supportive. And then one day I got a phone call saying, we're not going to make your movie which was shocking to me because we had gone far enough down the line where we had a budget, a schedule. We were starting to talk about casting. And although I, you know, I don't know what made them take that position, it wasn't long after the election. And I know that they were very concerned about their arrangement with AT&T. So they'd already, the AT&T deal was already in the works yeah. or just about yeah, finalized, yeah. just about announced, and you think maybe there's a connection there? I don't know if it was the politics. It may have just been an accounting issue mm-hmm. of let's not agree to make a movie um, right now. You know, what they did, which never happens, is they gave it back. And it was really, 
you know, more than anything, this guy, Len Amato there, who's a, a really class act, and Len called me and said, I want to get your movie out of here. Let's make sure it's gone before this deal goes through and get your lawyers on this right away. Because the studios, all the networks, all the studios do this thing where they start working on a project, it gets killed for whatever reason, and then it sits around in their vaults in some form. Yeah, they don't really want to give it back because what if it gets made and it turns out to be good? Right. Then somebody looks stupid. Um, and so they do tend to sit on these things, and the Writers Guild has rules about reversion. So I was really grateful that they made it easy for us. And then we went out into the world, and nobody in Hollywood wanted to make a movie that was, you know, an American political thriller. Um, and Which what, doesn't have a happy ending, by the way. Well, I don't know. All right. It, it has. It, there's no, the guy, the guy doesn't save the universe and doesn't defuse the bomb at the end. No, but the truth does get told. True. And I went around and started talking to these independent financing people to try and, and cobble together something. And then one night I had dinner with a friend of mine who works for Vice Media, this guy, Eddie Moretti. And I said, I really, I don't know what to do. And he read the script and called me the next day and said, let's figure this out. And we made the movie... Instead of, you know, the 48-day schedule that HBO gave me, we made it in 26 days, which was brutal. So this is underwritten in part by Vice Media. Yeah. And we got the movie made and were accepted into Sundance. And it was a really surreal experience because we had shown the movie to, like, groups of friends, maybe 10 or 15 at a time. And then all of a sudden you're at Sundance in this theater called Eccles there, and there's 1,200 people. And that was, uh, you know, that was sort of where the rubber hits the road. And we got a great response. Um, we got a standing ovation, and Amazon called us a little bit while, a little couple hours later, and said we'd like to get into a negotiation for the film. So um, Sundance is, is, is for fans and people who yeah. like film, but it's, it's, it, it, practically a big part of it is getting these films in front of the Amazons yeah. of the world so they can buy it. Yeah, it's a market. Right. Um, and so were you expecting that a streaming service would want to buy this? Honestly, I was just hoping somebody yeah. would want to buy it. I really wanted it to be in a theater. And so when we began our negotiation with Amazon, they knew that. Um, and it was, it was a bizarre midnight negotiation, which is kind of what happens at Sundance because prior to midnight, everybody's seeing movies. So you show up in some condo at midnight and it was Steven Soderbergh and I and about 20 people from Amazon. And, you know, we made it really clear that our hope was the movie would have some kind of theatrical life. And they were, you know, they were really up to do that. And that's, they, I think consistently they've been doing that. Yeah. Uh, I think yeah. the window is shrinking, right? They used to give you months in the theater, and now I think it's, what, less than a month for you guys for yeah. this one? Yeah, although they'll keep it in theaters, I think, as long as it's viable, which is great. And again, you know, it's like we were talking about before, it's always this sort of feeling of, on one hand, you want to have the theatrical experience. On the other hand, to make that experience sustainable and spend that much money on marketing and, and really get out there with it when there are companies like Disney, who have films like Star Wars, it's really hard. And so Amazon can make this make sense financially 
because there are people who subscribe to Prime who, you know, want this kind yeah. of content. Do you, I think I read that, that you sold it for $14 million, is that the ballpark? Yeah. Is this the sort of thing where if Netflix had said, oh, we'll give you 15 or 16, name some incremental number, but it's more money, but you're not going to get that window, or it's a shorter window, is that, do you walk away from it at that point? How much is that, how much is that theatrical experience worth to you as the, as the person who made this thing? A lot. I don't know that there was a dollar figure that would have made me give that up. Okay. Well, Scott's been very clear. Go see it in the theater. It's worth millions of dollars to him. Untold millions. <laughs> exactly. So with that, let's talk about The Laundromat, which you can only see at Netflix, right? Did It never showed up No, the it wasn't. Okay. I, I take it back. Um, and I'm assuming it went through what they're doing with The Irishman right now, which is it's in yeah. a handful of theaters. Exactly. One of them randomly is in my neighborhood in Bay Ridge, which turns out to be a Ma and Pa theater. But that was a Netflix movie from the get-go, right? No. No. Okay. That was also an independent project. It was a story that I came across, well, the world came across it. It was the Panama Papers mm -hmm. leak. And when that appeared, I was fascinated by it because I don't know shit about finance at all. I mean, like, less than nothing. And I just was fascinated by this idea that you can create entities that don't do anything and stash money in there, and it's very hard to see where that money came from. And in much of it's legal. Yeah, well, that, yeah. And that this law firm in Panama, Masek and Fonseca, had been hacked by somebody who calls themselves John Doe. And I read the John Doe manifesto and found myself agreeing with pretty much every word of it. And to me, it seemed like there had to be a way of getting to the other side of the telescope with this story. So instead of it being about journalists or a hacker, I really wanted to find a way of showing people what, what the real costs are of a rigged system. Had you read the coverage of, of the, the leaks? It was, it was one of these things where it was spread out among a bunch of different papers, yeah. and they all wrote different slices of the story. Yeah, I read a lot of it. Um, Jake Bernstein um, wrote a book, and Jake was writing his book while I was writing the script, and we decided that we would buy the rights to his book. So that was very helpful because, first of all, he's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and is brilliant. But secondly, his research process was going on while mine was. And so I could say to him, you know, can you find me a story where someone had ill-gotten gains in China and, you know, squirreled them away somewhere in, you know, the BVIs. Yeah, it's a hard story to tell. I mean, at least the, in the, the way that papers all covered it, because yeah. they're covering individual things. Sure. They're, they, first of all, they have legalese and, and all the restrictions of journalism in terms of you, sometimes you can't say money laundering straight out. Um, and also, I think just because it's financial engineering, it's stuff you generally can't see yeah. by design. Um, and then I think in the U.S. it was even harder because most of the stuff didn't seem to touch people in the U.S. There were, there were various government officials around the world who had to resign. And yeah. in some cases, you know, I think one of the stories was, turns out Putin has a lot of money. But you kind of guessed that. But it did, I don't think it really resonated here. I think that made actually, it even harder to actually tell. Actually, Putin's friend, the cellist, has That's a lot right. of money. That's right. He had a cellist friend who had billions of dollars. Somehow. Yeah. yeah. One wonders who has to co-sign to get that money. So you say, this is another story about institutions and yeah. people trying to fight the institutions and it's very sort of obscure and hard to explain. That sounds like a good movie for me. 
Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I guess I somehow decided that it was my job to go into the weeds and pull out stories for people to to look at. It's certainly not like a, a conscious choice, and yeah. it's been pointed out to me that maybe I should, you know, do a superhero movie. Sometime? Maybe, yeah. But I like doing that, and I felt like this. Oddly enough, there was a movie that I had seen right around the time of the Panama Papers leak called Wild Tales. That was made by a director named Damien Ziffrin. And the movie's really cool. I highly recommend okay. it. But it was sort of an anthology story about bad human behavior. And this seemed like a different form of bad human behavior. His movie is entirely anthological. And I didn't want to go that far. I wanted to sort of use Masek and Fonseca as sort of a Greek chorus to try and teach people about how we're all getting screwed over. And that, you know, there's, they'll always say that there's a difference between tax evasion, which is criminal, and tax avoidance, yeah. which is smart. Which is a huge, huge business. Um, it sort of reminds me a little bit of, I'm sorry if a million people tell you this, but uh, The Big Short, yeah. in which you're also trying to explain complicated financial ideas, explain why they matter to you, the yeah, person living exactly. in Wisconsin or Michigan. Yeah. So I wanted to create sort of an every person character who you could sort of track through all of this, and and that's where the idea of Meryl Streep's character came from. But so you say, this is a movie I want to make. I'm going to go get financing yeah. for it from someone. Yeah. And then, what, what point does Netflix enter the picture? What happened was I sort of had approached Steven Soderbergh, and you know, Steven and I have been working together for about 16, 17 years, and the. the Sort of the rule for me is, you know, every movie is theoretically the last one um, that we'll be doing together unless I can come up with something new to, to pitch him. And with Steven, there's sort of two boxes you have to tick. It's not just the story you're telling. It's the form that that story is going to take. And so I think he was excited at this anthology idea that I had and doing something that was darkly comic is something that he and I really enjoy doing. We did a movie like that called The Informant a number mm -hmm. of years ago. Matt and Damon. I think, yeah, and I think we both loved playing in the waters of comedy. Um, so he, you know, he had agreed to do it. And my agents in L.A. found me somebody who got me enough money. It wasn't the normal amount that one would have gotten at a studio to write a script. So we wrote it, and we were able to get it in front of Meryl Streep and a couple of other people, and that's the great thing about working with Steven Soderbergh is that he can— They look at it? Yeah. Yeah. And it turns out Meryl had a lot of interest in this subject. She'd actually done some benefit work for journalists and the ICIJ, the International Consortium for Investigative Journalists, I think is what that stands for. They were the people who were handed the leak, the Panama Papers leak. One of them, I don't know if she was officially part of the group, was a reporter in Malta, or I think her son may officially have been part of it. But, you know, she was blown up in her car for looking closely at the behavior of Maltese officials and others who, you know, had participated in these kinds of systems. And there, there's a lot of really dark stuff in the data. Um, but Merrill, this was an important thing to Merrill, and that 
made life easier. You get her on board, she's in. And then you're at Netflix. Now you're at Netflix. And did you have that same sort of, look, I want people to see this in theaters or Netflix? We hear you, but look, there's a really big check here. They understood that it would help, I think, the profile of this movie because it's a Meryl Streep movie. And I guess one would have to be naive to realize that it's not for them just marketing, you know, and that the real... The real meal ticket here is for it to get on the service. But prior to that, I think that they understand that for people like Steven or for Martin Scorsese, that it's important for them that, you know, their work continues to to have a cinematic life. So they're willing to make that, I mean, they really do sort of fundamentally believe you should, they don't say this, but they think that it's just natural that you're going to want to watch it at home. That if you want to watch it in a theater, they want to make that available as yeah. sort of their line. But their expectation is, look, however number of people, however many number of people say they want to see it in theaters, we see the data and it says otherwise. Right. And this will reach a huge audience. One of the, the standard knocks against Netflix, it's now sort of now conventional wisdom. You certainly hear it from their competitors. There's so much stuff on there, it's hard to stand out. Right. Um, do they give you any assurance that, look, we're going to put this on a billboard, we're going to make sure Meryl Streep shows up on talk shows if that's what still happens with Meryl Streep. I'm not sure. You have those conversations and, you know, you you hope for the best. I mean, obviously, it's a competitive marketplace and they have a lot of content. And, you know, you, you try and get them to tell you exactly what they'll do. But it ends up being a very, you know, fluid world. And as the fall happens and all of the movies come out, you sort of have to you know, figure out where in the mix you're going to wind up. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff in there. I mean, and I'm part of the problem, right? I didn't watch your movie until this weekend because I was talking to you, which is nuts because I heard it was good, and it's a Steven Soderbergh movie, and I love all his stuff, and it's been sitting in my queue for weeks. Yeah. And it's that overwhelming uh, choice, right? Yeah, it's, there's, you know, there's a lot of, and there's a lot of really good content out there, and so it's tricky. And then there are movies, you know, I think... I can't remember if it's A24 or Neon, who has Parasite, which is yep. director Bong's new movie, and it's spectacular. You know, and which I, I saw in a the theater randomly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm glad that you saw that in a the theater. And and maybe it does work right now that if you know that that movie's only going to be in a theater for a period of time before it migrates to some streaming service, that it, it does make you go out, you know, and, and, and see it. Can we talk about the ad world for a minute? Because you came out of that world. Um, sure. Yeah, you just winced visibly, <laughs> almost audibly. As any as any ad person would. Where did you work in advertising? A lot of places. Yeah. I started out, um, if you're going to ask, I'm going to have to tell you yeah, the whole story. It. Was it um, called Fallon? Because that was the big Minneapolis ad I job. really wanted a job at Fallon, but I, I was not hired there. We both grew up in Minnesota at the time. Fallon was like the big yeah. deal ad firm because they were famous for the Rolling Stone A lot uh, of campaign. things, yeah. Fallon, McElligott, and Rice. Yeah. And... I ended up moving to Chicago to get out of Minnesota just because that's what you do. Get out of Minnesota, yeah. And then I worked at J. Walter Thompson in Chicago, of whom Mark Twain once said, never trust anyone who parts their name on the side. So I worked there, and then I worked at Young and Rubicam in Chicago. This is what you did out of college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I was a copywriter. And then, and I didn't really... I always had a very uneasy relationship with it. Like any any creative person yeah. who gets into advertising, I wanted you're to conflicted. As you know from being from Minnesota, I wanted to play in a band because yeah. that's what everybody 
seemed to do in Minnesota, but he didn't know at that point how good the bands were. And so, you know, when you went to go see Prince on a Friday night play at First Avenue, that just seemed like the local band. Although you could kind of tell with him. tell he had a movie up, but yeah. No, but this was even before oh, the movie. Well. You, you, but yeah, we, have, we, have a, we were talking about uh, Craig Finn. Yeah, this but I mean the same thing with yeah. The Replacements and Who's yes. For Do and, and Soul Asylum. I mean, those were bands that played in bars on Friday nights in Minneapolis. Anyway, so I go to Chicago. I work at ad agencies. There was an oil spill in Alaska. I went and volunteered there and cleaned otters. And I came back and I, I didn't want to work in advertising anymore. That you're going to say that you had to make an ad uh, extolling Exxon Valdez's yeah. Exxon's efforts to clean up their mess. No, it was kind of that was kind of the end of me in advertising in a, in a lot of ways. Um, so you had that moment of clarity, like I can't do this. All the stuff that makes me uneasy about advertising is yeah. never going to get any better. Yeah, it just seemed like inherently I was being tasked to come up with clever ways to get people to buy shit they might not need. Now, here's why I pause and say that everything we advertise on Recode Media is something you do need and should buy, and that helps <laughs> keep the lights on here. Let's continue. So I ended up kind of, you know, having this Robin Hood fantasy where I would freelance for ad agencies and then go work for environmental groups. And that was sort of my life. And it was fun because there were some ad agencies on the West Coast at that time that were peopled by, you know, folks like me, you know, people who got a liberal arts education and didn't go to law school and wanted to play in a band or paint or, you know, yeah. um, or make movies. And so I had the benefit of working a little bit at Wyden and Kennedy um, during the time when they were really building Nike's brand. Right. And then I worked at Goodby Berlin and Silverstein in San Francisco. And bizarrely, one day I showed up and they said, we have this client, it's the Milk Advisory Board. And I said, well, first of all, I'm lactose intolerant. Secondly, I'm not sure if adult mammals should be drinking milk, but okay. And they put me in a room with a really brilliant planner named John Steele and an art director. And the art director quit to go start his own ad agency and somehow or another I ended up being the person who helped start Got Milk. You're the Got Milk guy, it says on Wikipedia. I'm not the only Got Milk guy. There were, there were other people involved. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's very weird because you really understand the power of advertising. When we made An Inconvenient Truth, um, not long after that, Al Gore won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he invited all of us to come to you know Oslo with him. And I'm at this Nobel ceremony and I'm introduced to somebody who is the king of some country mm -hmm. in Scandinavia. And Al says, this is Scott. He has created the God Milk. And I'm like, first of all, <laughs> a lot of people worked on it, so I'm not the only person. But I thought, is this it? Like, no matter what I yes, do? It, it still is. Okay. It still is. Because it's a t-shirt. Did you learn something while you were in the ad business that translates into the movies you're making today? Very much so, yeah. You know... There's a real basic rule in screenwriting, which is, you know, get into a scene as late as possible and get out as early as possible. And the best... Take out the wind-up. Yeah. Try to have your exposition be organic. And I think the TV commercials, at least then, you know, there were a lot of really brilliant filmmakers who were working in TV. David Fincher, 
who you you know you mentioned Zodiac before, um, was one. I mean Ridley Scott, yep. and those were people who I really admired, and I admire them as filmmakers now. And it was this discipline about how you can identify a moment in a scene that really is what the scene is about. And we have 30 seconds, so yeah. we've got to strip it out. We've got to get your attention. We're going to tell a story and then tell you why you need to buy this thing that right. you don't need. Go. Yeah. And so I think the discipline of that was really important. The other thing that became really important is you would bring ideas to clients and they would kill them for the most arbitrary of, of reasons or no reason at all. And then you had to go back and make up something new. And I think that skill of problem solving is something in filmmaking that's really invaluable. I think the, you know, the mistake a lot of people, well, I don't know if it's a mistake. I think if you're Paul Thomas Anderson and you have just this clarity of vision, it's your job to stay with that vision no matter what. And wait for the world to come around to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's not my orientation. And, you know, working with Steven over the years, you know, we're more interested in let's figure out how to solve problems as they come up and try and make things better and not not cling. You know, I think that the reason that Steven never takes a film by credit you know, on a movie as opposed to pretty much everybody else at that level is because Stephen recognizes that this is a collaborative art. Yeah, he was, we had a good conversation about sort of collaboration and, and this is sort of post-Weinstein and, yeah. and obviously he shouldn't be a sexual predator, but also he shouldn't be an asshole. Yeah. And how maybe that was going to be something that would come out of this so that people would just behave better on sets. Are you noticing that? And we're now a couple of years out of sort of the, the Weinstein era or the Me Too, the, the initial Me Too stories. Well, I mean, I guess the three sets I've been on since all of this has come to life was, you know, the report and our set was a really spectacularly collaborative, respectful place. I mean, because you ran it. Well, and also because of the people who were there. I mean, Annette Benning is such a class act and, you know, it sort of informs the behavior of everybody else on set. And, you know, and the other people who are in the movie, people like Maura Tierney and Adam Driver and Jen Morrison and Michael C. Hall and John Hamm, they were all people who who were there because they wanted to help tell the story. Everybody was paid scale. So nobody was there for the money. And I think once you take that out of the equation, it gets much harder to be an asshole because there's no more entitlement. Mm-hmm. Everybody's there sort of on the same page. Any Steven Soderbergh set, is, you know, is a very serious workplace. And so there's none of that that would ever go on. And then I worked on The Loudest Voice, which was actually about a toxic workplace. And so nobody on that set would have, the irony would have been too much. And you are specializing in dark, dark stories about difficult institutions and what they mean to all of us. Well, we're messy little animals who have really beautiful ideas about institutions. We should leave it right there. Scott Burns, this is great. Thank you for coming in. If you guys are listening to this, you are listening to this, obviously, go see The Report in theaters if you can. Make Scott happier. And see it on Amazon if you can't see it in a theater. Go see The Laundromat in your basement. Yeah. On your phone. At least in your basement. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank you.